Welcome into this Five Clubs conversation. I'm Gary Williams. This week, going to be joined by a young guy with a great deal of talent. And a lot of times when somebody aspires to write, it doesn't necessarily mean that he can talk as well. And it used to be 25, 30 years ago, you didn't have to be able to talk, especially publicly. If you could write, that was enough of a skill to have a hell of a career. But this is somebody who started as a writer and immediately showed that he could talk as well. And he spends most of his time talking about other sports other than golf. But he loves golf and has admitted that he spends as much time maybe watching Golf Channel as he does anything else. I'm talking about Kevin Clark, who currently writes and produces content for The Ringer. And this is somebody who started his career at the Wall Street Journal, and now he is doing the NFL show as a podcast for The Ringer, but also the Slow Newsday podcast, as well as his writing. I'm interested about his path, his background, what he thinks of what's going on in professional golf, his interest in athletes who play golf, who play other sports, and also what's next for the PGA Tour. All that coming up on this Five Clubs conversation. With that, we welcome in Kevin Clark. Kevin, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great. It is unseasonably warm here in New York City. Uh, I'm I'm enjoying it. We're, we are five days away from moving from the city to the suburbs, so I'm I'm going through a lot right now. But I'm very very happy to be talking to you. Okay. Well, listen. Since you mentioned this to me before we got started, uh, uh, let's start there because you, you know you grew up in a town that I. You know, I, I lived in Winter Park, Florida for 10 years. You, yeah. you know, you, you grew up in Orlando. Um, but now you're in an area where I grew up. I grew up on the Jersey side in Bergen County, New Jersey, in the shadows of, of Midtown Manhattan. Uh, you are moving to the, the belly of the golfing, you know, beast in a <laughs> good way. You are going to be Quaker Ridge, Waikagill, and then the gothic, you know, just nirvana that is... Wingfoot. I'm I'm looking forward to figuring that out. My wife uh, has said we have to build a bathroom in our new house, an extra bathroom, before we can start pursuing golf clubs. So we've got some time on this. I can sort of take the tour of of the different places. I do not think uh, I you know Wingfoot is a is a pipe dream. It's it's a long way away. There's a lot of work to do before anything could happen with that. Um, but no, it's an amazing area for golf and i would say like the tri-state area in general oh. is just a paradise and and it's unbelievable i mean like even i know like beth page is one of those things that gets talked about so much that it seems impossible to be underrated but when you consider even beth page red which you you can play for like 40 50 bucks whatever it is it's what i think it was the fourth best muni course in the country i i saw ranked obviously black being number one like i i cannot believe as someone who came from la where the public courses were okay. Griffith Park is okay. Um, hard to get a tee time, all that stuff. But then I got to New York and I was like, this is golfing heaven. I mean, if it was 20 degrees warmer in the winter, I, I don't know. I think every golfer in the world would want to live here. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. I mean, the season is short, but I honestly think like whether, you know, now that you're already right in that area anyway, but the island and what the summer months on Long Island yeah. and, and the depth of of epic experiences you can have 
out there on the eastern end of Long Island. And, I mean, all the way out there. I mean, seriously, you, you can yeah. get off at virtually every third stop and, and you're going to find some really good little gem, if not some historic venue. Last year, uh, before we moved to New York City uh, for the second time, we lived with my wife's father for a couple of weeks or we months while we were looking for places out on Long Island. I played Montauk Downs like three days a week and it was unbelievable. But also the funny thing about Montauk Downs, Gary, is that no one, it goes from zero to a hundred when people were out in the Hamptons. And so the last time I played was in April of last year. And the starter literally said at like 2 PM, I was the sixth person on the course. So you get not only because nobody's out there because yeah. nobody's out there. So it's a Robert Trent Jones. That's gorgeous. That I think I've made the point. I told, you know, a couple of my, my sort of golf media friends, I said before, if you, if there was a way for Montauk to be more accessible, that's the kind of public course I'd like to see spruced up to play a bigger tournament, something like that, because it's a gorgeous course. It's just so far out there. There's no hotel. It'd be really hard to do something like that. But nobody's out there for eight months out of the year. It is unbelievable, the golfing options, the further you get out on Long Island. No, you're right. I, my my dear friend and, and someone I know that you, you have done some interviews with, Damon Hack, Montauk Downs yeah. is among his, his absolute favorite places it's a hell of a neighborhood to 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 reside in you know and yeah. I, I talk about you know these various golf courses either built you know like I, some people call it renaissance i i find that insufferably difficult to, to hear people say that it's renaissance anyway yeah. that that's right next to Mirfield, and it's like yeah you know i don't know how good it is and it's like that's a hell of a big brother to live across the street <laughs> from and it's it's like you go out on long island that's why i played friar's head for the first time this summer and yeah. I'm like, wow, that that is it's impressive that Core Crenshaw built something that honest to God can go toe to toe. I'm not yeah. saying it's Shinnecock. Shinnecock has has a lot of things on its side with the major championship and the history and all that stuff. But but these places that have this 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 density of greatness is amazing. And now you are in the throes of it, my friend, moving up to Larchmont and that that vicinity. You're going to love it. Yeah, I played Friar's Head last summer. And the thing I love about, and maybe, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is reductive, but when I feel like, I feel like I'm in, when I'm in Florida, it's almost, so many courses feel like resort courses. And so many people they are like, uh, yeah, they are. <laughs> and, and, and when you're in New York, when you're playing at Friar's Head or any of these places, it feels like it's a bunch of golf dorks like us talking about golf. And that's what I love. And Friar said the, the, the talk is about the course and, and, and what you're going to see on 16, 17 and 18. I mean, it's just as someone who I feel one of the things I love about golf is you know, I've, I've an obsessive personality. When I get in a rabbit hole, I do not get out of it. And when I start reading about this architect, I keep I want to learn about everything, single course he's done, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and so for, for me to be around other golf dorks, it's, it's really special and I really enjoy it. And, and I feel like there's a heavy concentration of them in the Northeast. And, and I think the courses play a huge part of that. You know, for people, and, and as you can imagine, the lane that I'm in, this, this is very narrow. These are, these are golf people that are pursuing this content. Um, and for those folks who don't know, and I didn't get into it in the open, just kind of gave an understanding of your little bit of your background, what you do, your passion for golf, even though you spend a lot of time talking about other sports, primarily the NFL. Um, I, I want people to understand a little bit about your background. And, 
And one of the things that I've always appreciated about you is, is that, you know, I think writing is at a hell of a skill. I have great admiration for people who can write. And I, when I was, when I was a teenager, I was the kid who stopped and, and got the USA Today and got the national when I, when you could get the national yeah. from, yes. from, you know, a, a newspaper dispensing machine. And then also on Sundays, the little newsstand in Ridgewood, uh, right there by the train tracks, I could get the Sunday Boston Globe. I couldn't get it during the week, but I could get the Sunday Globe. And the sports section of the Sunday Globe was the 27 Yankees lineup of writers. Yep. And and your mother won a, won a Pulitzer Prize. And, and mm -hmm. she was an editor of the Orlando Sentinel. Your father you know, is, is contributes. I, I think he still does yeah. at central Florida as a, as he's a, a, he's a history uh, professor at UCF. Okay. But he, also, he was a, he was, a, he used to be the editor of Orlando magazine, which I'm sure you, you yes. in Orlando. Okay. Yeah. So, so you had this, you, you know, that this idea of nature versus nurture, you had it in your household. <laughs> your parents obviously have curious minds. Did you, did it dawn on you early on that your mind was curious or was it just a natural, you know, progression for somebody who, whether you were a preteen or a young teenager, that you found yourself curious about things? I, that's a great question. I think there was always a natural curiosity. I think that the biggest thing, you mentioned the national, there was a guy, I don't know if you overlapped in Orlando with him, but the former Orlando Sentinel sports editor was a guy named Van McKenzie, who was the sports editor of, excuse me, the managing editor of the national um, for a long time. And he had so many connections and he was the guy that brought Chris Mortensen into this, into this industry and all of this stuff. And, and just an absolute legend. He passed away a few years ago, sadly. But for me, when he took over the Orlando Sentinel sports section, there was a group of people there. And uh, Joe Shad, Jeff Darlington, Jamel Hill, Charles Robinson. Um, I'm going to forget people, but it was, I started to read the sports section when I'm 13 years old, 14 years old. And I'm saying, okay, these people are having fun. And this is, this is what something I'd like to do. And being around Van, obviously he worked with my mom and talking to him and he would have all of these great stories about the eighties and sports and night, you know, the nineties and so-and-so was trying to track down a Vince Dooley rumor and Vince was in Greece. So they flew over to Greece, you know, stories like that, where you're just like, this is what I want to do. And so I think the biggest thing from a natural curiosity standpoint, I think I figured out I had that probably later once I figured out that I wanted to be a sports writer. Right. Um, I think that this, the sports writing came first because I, I was actually not, not not great of a student when I was when I was certainly in Orlando, but I always had this desire. I was always reading sports books, always reading. Actually, it was more baseball when I was in middle school and high school, but I always had this desire to learn more about something. And I didn't know it was that natural curiosity you needed to have a, to be a journalist until maybe later in high school, early in college, where I was like, oh, okay, I have something is wired to me that most people don't have. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, um, I guess I've always had it because kind of just growing up and knowing kind of what it takes to be a journalist. But I think that the, the nurture part of it, um, more than even my parents, was being around an environment in Orlando. And you know this, Garrett, like there's so many sporting events in Orlando, it's almost like the underrated sports capital of the world. And like even something as simple as like the Bucks used to do their training camp in at, at, at Disney when I was growing up and nobody used to go and, and there were ebbs and flows about how popular that team was. Spring training was everywhere um, when I was growing up. Now there's only one team in, in Orlando and it's it's the Braves, but it, there used to be five, six, seven teams within within an hour. 
Um, even something as simple as, and I wasn't actually a huge golf fan growing up, but if you remember the Tavistock Cup um, in Orlando, aside from, by the way, the um, obviously the, the tournaments there, I mean, I saw, I saw Tiger Woods um, when, when he was on his long winning streak, one of those tournaments was in Orlando um, at Disney. I was, I was there for that. But even like the Tavistock Cup where it's just like, oh, there's this event I can go to where I can just watch Tiger Woods warm up at the range with 50 other people. Like, that's it. Like, you're not getting this anywhere else. And so there was, I don't think, for the, for as much as I love sports and as much as I was around it, being in Orlando, like, there was no choice for me but to be as seeped in it as, as I wanted to be. And that's what I think that there was... Uh, there's a million ways this all could have played out, but like growing up in Orlando at that time, and even like the Shaq and Penny magic, like you think about it, it was it was not normal for a town that small in 92, 93, 94 to have that sort of glamorous sports team. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, Orlando used to be a really small town. And so I think that it, it was just, it's a lot of, of nurture. There was some nature because of my parents, but, but really it was just the environment that when I was around as a kid that was just really special. You know, one thing that, that I saw when I was, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what the year was when NBC put Will McDonough on as, as an insider. And, yeah. and it was like, wow, you know, that he's, tracing, he's, he's blazing a trail here. And, and what I, what I, the reason I bring him up is that now with the proliferation of, of all the digital content, you know, if you're a great writer, it doesn't mean that you can't just focus on that. But it's almost like, God, you damn well better be good at talking as well, uh, because yeah. there's this obligation for someone like, you know, look, Bill Simmons created something with Grantland, which I, 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 I find I find that and found it so aspirational, like, God, an aggregate of these voices and minds creating content in all these different lanes, whatever it is that they want to talk about. But it wasn't just writing, it was talking. Did you feel like your ability to talk about sports was running neck and like, like affirmed in Aladar with your writing or was one out in front of the other? I didn't know I could talk about it because I was in the Wall Street Journal before yeah. I was at the writer, okay? And all we did was write 13 to 1500 word pieces once a week about football. So I never podcasted. I went on TV maybe twice, three times, certain during the Ray Rice thing. I was sort of an outside guest on some of these, these more serious news networks. And that was it. And so I didn't know what I was good at. I mean, it's, it's, it's like anything. Like, unless you're doing it, you have no idea if you're good. And I honestly didn't know when I went to The Ringer, I knew there'd be podcasts. Obviously, I didn't know it would be a podcast first company. And I didn't even know. I mean, like, the, once we were bought by Spotify, excuse me. Once we were bought by Spotify, obviously that decision was made that we were audio first, but it's always been a combination of, of the three, um, writing, video, and, and podcasting. Um, but no, this it was a happy accident that I could talk about. I mean, I knew that I had some ability to at least articulate what I was writing, but you know, it's, it's funny, my, my wife does, my wife works at the Wall Street Journal and she does less TV than I do. And she's, sometimes she'll always be nervous. And I'm just like, we have such an advantage over everybody else as writers because we've already put our thoughts onto paper. Like everybody who are, you know, if you're a TV anchor, if you're a TV analyst, all of them would love the competitive advantage of having spent three, four, five hours sitting down and just figuring out what they think about everything. And I always say like, if you're ever stuck on, oh, I don't know what to say about the Lions. I don't know what to say about the Packers. I don't know what to say about the University of Georgia. Like in our brain somewhere, or thousands of words we've already said about them. So just paraphrase that, like you've already come up with your points. 
And so I think those two things are tied together. As long as you can string a sentence together, you're going to be able to talk about it. So that's why I think you mentioned Will McDonough, like the big revolution, my colleague, Brian Curtis talks about this all the time. The big revolution over the past 20, 30 years is the insider as a, you know, cheap analysis relative to paying Tony Romo $20 million to yep. do it. Um, although Tony, Tony, Tony's worth it and Troy Aikman is worth it and all that stuff. Um, but like, you know, there was a, 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 a swerve, I think Brian Curtis called it, between when Adrian Wojnarowski went full insider because he used to be an opinion columnist. And we switched from opinion to information over the past, I'd say, 15 years. Um, and you can get your opinion anywhere. We have Twitter to get lots of opinions, although we, who knows how long that's going to last. Um, and so I think that being able to deliver the information and, 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 and raw facts and figures to people in a coherent way is a really good way to, to make your mark in this industry. And so it was all a happy accident that I can talk about it, but I do think that every writer in their brain has a competitive advantage over everybody else, which was our, our thoughts are already out there and, and we, we can regurgitate that stuff for as long as we want. Yeah, there's, if you look at, you know, you, you mentioned Adrian, and then, like, I remember when Adam Schefter moved from the NFL Network to ESPN, and it was it was a legitimate big get for ESPN, and going, wow, this, okay, so now the line has moved again, where, the, like, it, it was, you know, again, it's it's the insider, but now this is, like, taking it to another level. And and with mm -hmm. the and, and with the advent of the social media, it wasn't no, we don't we're not breaking in from from around the horn for you to give this. Or we're not gonna we're not gonna drop it on the bottom line. We're gonna use social media for these bombs to be dropping, and and your following is gonna be so prolific that that mm -hmm. your value is going to be X, and it, that X has yep. got a lot of zeros behind it. And so it's interesting, like I, I thought that, like I thought Tony and Michael Wilbon was another, was another like line in the sand being crossed, like two scribes being thrown together mm -hmm. who, who, you know, respectfully, not necessarily the most telegenic guy, didn't telegenic <laughs> guys didn't matter. The other thing, right. Kevin, that they did is that they put the topics in the margin and you're going, yeah. what, and it's one word or it's, or it's, or a, t a yeah. team name or the name of a player and you're going, I wonder what that 90 seconds is going to be on. So it was like, there's the menu and they're going to decide how they're going to chew on the meat. And so like all of these various things that we've moved forward in, um, it, somebody had to be the first. And if they were good, then I thought that that made you know, the opportunities for others, not necessarily immediately more plentiful, but available. And like you mm -hmm. said, like information now is it's gold, it's platinum, it's mm -hmm. everything. It's unbelievable. And it's everything. It's every single sport and it's all yes. transactional. And it's funny because I don't think that I don't, I don't want to be that kind of insider. You know, I'm right. really close with, I, I know Schefter well, but I'm, I'm also uh, my, my, one of my new Westchester neighbors will be Ian Rappaport. And he was, he was laughing. We, <laughs> we were laughing a couple months ago because he was saying, you know, he'll be in the shower and he'll get out and he'll get a text from someone and he'll tweet something. And it turns out, you know, Mike Garofalo tweeted it 90 seconds earlier and people will just come at him and be like, you're late, bro. You're late. And it's like, how, how quickly did everything change? That being 90 seconds late to something is like a massive loss, you know, or like, Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in my kids little league game. I, I was looking up, watching him look down, 
there's some breaking news. Sorry, I lost by 30 seconds. And somehow like the world has shifted so much that that's a massive loss for you. So it's all very funny, but the information part of it for football, it ties into fantasy and it ties into gambling. And, you know, it's funny because I wish college football and Pete Thamel does a great job of this. I've yes. noticed over the past couple of weeks with injury stuff. I wish college football were covered more like that it's really hard to get inside those programs, but like you can't get accurate injury reports. No, you cannot. On colleges. Right. And it is a nightmare. And like, I was, I went to Miami and I know you were at that game the other day and, and, you know, I, there were a bunch of guys where I didn't see them for the first three series. And my friends and I were like, well, where is this guy? And it's like, well, maybe he's hurt. We don't know. Cause there are no real college injury reports and it's so aggravating. But I do think that the fact that there is so much information about all of sports is for us at the pro level is really helpful. I mean, there's never been a better time to be a fan. And part of that is the Woj, Rap Sheet, uh, Schefter type of ecosystem where you can get anything you need now. No, it, it, you know, and I think Pete, and I'm, I, I don't know him, um, and I've always been, you know, it's kind of interesting. I, I, I found myself, you know, I, I wanted to be good at things. I had the dexterity to do anything, hit my ceiling at about 12, but, and was immediately was immediately really, really interested and, yeah. and captivated by not only what I was watching on television, who was talking about it. And so yeah. I, I, I say that because, like, to me, game day is it's, it's, it's such an important property in the landscape yeah. of, of sports television. And when you bring on somebody like Pete, you're going, God, I hope this works out. Um, and you never know. And the same thing with, with 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 Pat as well. And I'm going, God, you know, that is a big seat to sit in. And those two guys, you talk about an infusion, and I didn't know we were going in this direction, and I don't really care that we are. Those two guys have given that program a jolt that, you know, I wasn't thinking to myself going into the season, and I love Corso, um, yeah. that, they, that they desperately needed. But the fact is they needed it. And they've gotten it from two people who have, have – infuse that program with with an energy that is very sustainable going forward game day is one of my favorite shows and what's funny about game day and i know this is gonna sound crazy but it serves the same purpose as golf on television here's what i mean by that and i would also say formula one is like this too and i know people are listening and saying where the hell is he going with this it serves at its very basic function as a travel show and if you, it doesn't matter how locked in you are, it doesn't matter how much you know, you turn on TV and you see, I want to be there, right? So like, if you're looking at, when it's January and it's 20 degrees here and they're in Hawaii, I will, I, I don't care how locked in I am. I don't care if there's a playoff game in 20 minutes that, that, that I'm, I've got all my attention towards. I need to see great views of the water and I need to see Justin Thomas hitting five irons into, into great horizons, right? And game day, it's like, they're going to Texas this week. Yeah, TCU and 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 Texas, and I'm gonna see the quad in Austin, and I'm gonna go. I could use a Bud Light in the quad in Austin right now. Like I could be there. I'd rather be there than amongst a bunch of moving boxes. And so that's always why I'm gonna tune in. But you need a certain energy to keep me logged in for for 90 minutes, right? And so Pat McAfee is unbelievable at that. And 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 it's funny because you, I would watch Pat McAfee do anything, anything. Like he is just so charismatic on anything, and it's like even. When he's talking about a sport he doesn't know, it's it's funny. It's funny to watch, you know, like if he's on on there talking about NASCAR or whatever, I'll, I'll watch that. And Thamel is the best of the best. But it just it, game day to me is is uh, like the pinnacle of television. It's fun. 
it's it's location it's got analysis i just i just love it so much I, i'll tell you a quick because you're from orlando you like this lee corso story um so i went to uh bishop moore my my which yes. is catholic high school in orlando for my first year of high school and there's a lot of geographic diversity at at bishop moore like some kids are from Werner park some are from uh far out in lake mary some from downtown lake may there, there's not there's not one area you draw from and so we would sell like the chocolate and the wrapping paper and all that stuff that everybody else does for fundraising and a couple of the kids i knew from lake mary were absolutely destroying everybody else destroying everybody else and I was like, what the hell is going on here? Is somebody cooking the books over and over in Lake Mary? And I found out that Lee Corsa is the absolute king of this buying you out because he was such a great guy <laughs> that if you went to fundraise at Lee Corso's house, he was going to buy you out and you were going to destroy everybody because that's what kind of guy he was. And I've always thought about that with Lee Corso, that everybody in his neighborhood was winning the fundraising drive because they had the competitive advantage of Lee Corso. Uh, you know, that's a good one. And I, my, my affinity for him, uh, my dad played baseball against him in college. My dad was a pitcher yeah. at the university of Florida and he was a great two sport athlete. Great. Uh, at Florida state. And my dad actually had a no hitter into the eighth inning against Florida State, and Corso broke it up. Um, so, I, but I, I have always, wow. first of all, he was, look, I, you know, you talk to people who've been around that program, who, who you know, Lee Fitting, who is a, who's a friend, who, who ran that property as it was ascending, you know, he'll tell you, like, he's the show. Like, he's the show. And it's not an easy transition, and I know that he's still going to have, you know, an opportunity to be a part of it, and I hope he comes back before the end of the season. But, but Pat is... He's a singular talent, like you said. You'll yeah. listen to him or watch him engage in any conversation about anything. And I don't care if if his depth of knowledge is right. petri deep dish deep. I mean, I don't care because he's gonna he's gonna naturally make it. And I can tell you the other thing. And I love I I love watching body language. And I'm looking at Pollock and I'm looking at Herbie and I'm looking at Reese and I'm going. They like him. They like him. Mm -hmm. There is no. There's no rigidity. They're all just totally locked in on the guy. Yep. Yep. It's, it's, it's amazing. I love it. And, and I just, you know, college football is about the culture and it's about the atmosphere. And one of the things that worries me about conference realignment, some of these things is that we, they just try to make it a national property and, and it becomes just a junior version of the NFL. And I think some people, especially in television, would want that uh, at other networks maybe. But I think that what game day does is it takes the college football culture, the regional culture, whichever that may be, even if they're Oregon, that's its own culture, for, different from Texas, different from Florida State. And so I think that that's that they do such a good job of preserving what people like about the sport. Let, let me let me talk a little bit about golf because I'm I yeah. look for people who don't know you you're 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 into it in a in a bona fide way. Where did that start? Yeah. So I screwed up and did not golf when I lived in Orlando. And now I, it drives me nuts because I think about all the opportunities and some of my best friends live right near Winter Park nine, which is such which an I played course. four and nights play, a week for years. Yeah. They play, they play every Friday and the, you know, their wives bring, have the strollers in tow and it's, it's something I'm intensely jealous of. Um, but uh, I'm not moving back to Orlando. Um, but 
So when I moved to LA, so I tried to golf very briefly when I lived in New York. Impossible. When I lived in Manhattan, impossible. Yeah. Chelsea Piers, which is the one range yeah. in the five boroughs, or there's there's some in South Brooklyn, but it's the one range you can get to from Manhattan. Um, I don't even know, 50 bucks a bucket, something like that. Like it's Makes not good. sense. Yeah. And so so that 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 was out. I tried for like a month, it didn't work. So when I moved to LA. It was something that a couple of people who were helping run the ringer were at least sort of into. Um, Sean Fantasy, who's who's one of our top guys, uh, played a lot. He's from Long Island. Um, Jeff Chow, who's one of our our, our heads um, on the business side, played a lot. And Chris Ryan, um, who's on, you guys probably know him from, from the Rewatchables and a lot of those other podcasts, was yep. just started. And so I got in a lot of those courses. And because of that, because I was playing with my bosses constantly, my game is entirely cosmetic. And what I mean by that is that <laughs> all I wanted to learn was how to not embarrass myself. So off the tee, I look awesome. If you saw me off the tee, you'd say that that's a stick right there. Long irons, actually pretty good. Disgraceful short game, disgraceful putting because I never took the time. I don't, I, that, I wasn't into scoring. I don't care. I'm just with my bosses and I can't, I don't want to duff it off the tee. I don't want to send it into the woods. So I spent all my time on the driver on the long irons and maybe one day I'll, and probably when I get to the suburbs, I'll be able to chip more and, and get going that way. But I fell in love with golf in California. Um, was able to play a bunch of nice courses out there, not just in Los Angeles, but uh, the Orange County Resort courses, which I, I only recommend you playing once if you value your bank account. Um, but it, it, it was, it, for me, as someone, and I, I heard Tony Romo talk about this one time on a golf podcast, I think about it all the time, where he, he has something he, he calls like the 5% rule, where when you practice, if you're really obsessed with something and you're really practicing, you only get better or unlock something like 5% of the time. And you're doing the 95% in service of the 5%. And as someone, and Tony Romo is a much better athlete than me. He's a much better golfer than me. He's got a lot more time to do this stuff than I do um, now that he's retired. But I, I have an obsessive personality. And so that's what I want to do. I just want to sit at a range somewhere and just start working on on my on my fade until it's it's absolutely perfect right and and so that to me appealed immediately and then you consider travel aspect of it then you consider just you know how much fun it is to be anywhere at 4 p.m drinking an ipa um you know working on working on breaking uh 80 you know i mean that that, that to me is the most fun thing in the world and so once i started playing i was hooked there was no there was no going back on it my wife um has started to play um, actually, at the Orange County thing, she didn't play, and they they one of the resort courses in Orange County charged us for a ride along, and she was so offended that she decided to start playing as to never have that happen again. Um, and so uh, that that to me, we we've had a great time. You know, we lived in Florida for six months during 2020. We played a bunch of great um, Florida courses, a bunch of Pete dies, and we played Winter Park Nine together. Um, so I, I just. I'm obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with, with, with the pro part of it too. Um, I'm, I'm a big, it's pretty much the only sport I gamble on anymore, but I just, I, 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 I can't get enough of it. Frankly, I'm watching, watching the golf channel right now. So, you know, the, the, the desire to play the game and get better at the game, um, you know, because of what you do, you don't have to 
watch the game. You don't have to maybe even have a curiosity or an interest in maybe covering it to some degree. So with that, what is your ambition to, to, to talk to people who play the game professionally? You know, look, you, when, I, when I look at your, your list of the people that have been on your Slow News Day program, mm -hmm. look, you, you get great guests. And, and it, it helps when they understand the show. And I, yeah. I say that because I'm a huge Levitard show fan. Yeah. As somebody who did 10 years of, of local radio, and the fact that those guys as a group uh, did a local radio, and now they're, they're basically, they're, it's, it's genius. And I think Mike Ryan is a brilliant producer, and Stu is, yeah. the, the whole thing, I get your show. And, and so how, how much would you like to potentially incorporate golf into your content? Yeah. So, yes, the answer is yes. Uh, the answer is a lot, and yes. So, when I I changed roles at the beginning of this year, and and I have my own podcast feed now, no longer a part of the Ringer NFL show, which I was uh, the host of for five years. I have my own feed, and within that, I can curate whatever I want. So that means NFL on Monday, typically during the fall, NFL on Wednesday, and then whatever on Friday. Normally, that that means football. Sometimes it's college, sometimes it's college, sometimes it's all NFL, whatever. It depends, depends on who it is. Sometimes it's Ed Reed and we're able to do both, whatever. And so with golf, I don't see a scenario in which I'm not doing more of it in, in the spring. Um, I have written about it a handful of times. I love writing about it. It's funny because, and this is true of boxing too. I will get people who say to me after I write a college football story, a golf story or a boxing story, They'll say, that's you know, th that story was better than the NFL thing you did last week or whatever. And I'm always like, okay, if I wrote about the NFL twice a year, I'm sure I would, I would, you know, it would be blockbuster because all of my thoughts go in this one thing. So I actually like writing about golf because if you only have to produce two or three thoughts about golf over the course of a year, yeah, they're gonna be pretty good columns. Um, and so I kind of want to I like testing myself. So the idea of doing more golf more college football and just seeing if I do one thing a month, for instance, instead of tw two things, a golf season, how different that is. Um, and so I, I do want to do it. You know, I mean, the, the, I do think that one thing that would be hard is the travel aspect of it. Yep. All. Um, I'd like to do some of, some of the majors. Um, I haven't really been able to, been able to do that when i was down in south florida working for the newspaper i used to cover uh doral and that was always really really fun um you know i think part of it is i've spent the last 10 years going to 20 training camps a year going to practices midweek in in december for nfl going to owners meetings and otas and all of this stuff and i had such a great respect for the people who do the golf version of that, the people who are grinding and going to, you know, Sanderson Farms in October <laughs> just to get 10 minutes yeah. with with, uh, with Spieth, right? And I, I want to make sure that I'm not just going to come over the top and just say, okay, I'm here now. Here we go. Now we're going to have great golf opinion. Like there are so many people who are better equipped to do it than me. But I do, I think that the most important thing you were talking earlier about McAfee and, and just the body language I think when you have a passion for something, it shows. Yep. And I think that if someone who, where it's one of the favorite things in the world are giving opinions on something, it's going to come through. So I think that's the value is like, I can put some words together. I love golf. 
I know enough about it to where I can produce some stuff, but I'm never going to be um, Dylan or Daniel Rappaport or any of these guys who are out there, you know, grinding every single week, every single month, getting access, getting 10 minutes with these guys here and there in service of something. It's always going to be sort of ancillary to me. Um, and I, I just, I just love it. I mean, I, I, we're actually going to try to go to the masters last year, this year in 2022, had a scheduling conflict with something, um, in, in my family that I had to go to, but that's, it's definitely something that's on the table because I just think for me, one of the things about my, what I'm doing now is I want to weigh in on the big event, whatever that is. So that could yeah. be the national championship. That could be the super bowl. That could be live golf split like that, that, that to me, um, you know, that includes golf at least three times a year when you talk about the U.S. Open, the Masters, the British Open, whatever. I haven't been able to to finagle a trip over to, to Britain yet, but, but we got to work on that. You, you do. You know, the, the thing about you saying, you know, I, I don't want to be like, hey, look, I'm here and now everybody stop and give me your time. What, <laughs> I, what I have found, though, is that, that, you know, when you when you have a following, which you have. Um, you know, you, you know, this golfers are, they're sports fans and, yeah. and there's an appreciation that comes with somebody who would quit, would of his own accord, take the time to say, look, I want to cover this. And, and I would, I, my intuition tells me, and I'm pretty, pretty good about this, that, that these players would be like, oh, this is great. That, and that, that Kevin is here and this is this is going to be yeah. good, whether it's Justin Thomas, Jordan Speed, John Rahm. And I can go down the list. And I this is a different example. But like Shane Ryan, when he wrote mm -hmm. Shane wrote Slaying the Tiger and he was an outsider and and he wrote what I thought was one of the better unvarnished views of the PGA Tour that I had ever read that I ever read. Uh, and he's subsequently gone on and he wrote the book about the Ryder Cup at Whistling Straits. And now he's he's devoting his career to writing primarily about golf. And I'm not saying that's going to happen to you, but the game the game can always use voices and, and, and people who are, you know, carving opinion who have a mm -hmm. wider lens. And I'm not saying that these guys are complicit when they just cover golf every week. But the game is better served with with guys who who have other interests. It just is. That's why I always appreciated that Dave Anderson came to majors and Bob Ryan mm -hmm. came to majors. And and if you you know, I, I would imagine you make the appeal, whoever it is that you have to appeal to. Um, and I don't know Bill's affinity for golf. I don't think he I never heard him talk about golf. But anyway, like I hope that they let you do it because it's 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 good for the game if you do it. Yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that. And I think the biggest thing in, in anything, kind of what I said earlier, is doing the work once you're within that and not coming in and just trying to be, you know, hot take opinionator and saying, you know, John Rahm's never going to win another major. He, you know, he can't get his emotions under control, that kind of stuff. And so I think that's the, the, the most important thing is getting the, getting the access to do it, getting the runway to do it, which I think I think I have. And then once you're there, just kind of kind of working your ass off. So I I agree that um, that there's probably more more golf in my future. Um, and and I think that I think it's something definitely I, I, I want more on my plate because I, I just I just think it's so fun. And you can kind of again, if you love something, you can roll out of bed and write something good about it or, or talk something good about it. I mean, like that, that's just it. I mean, like I, someone said to me, someone joked with me a couple of weeks ago, they were saying, if you, if you had to talk for an hour on something with no preparation, what would it be? And for me, the answer would be University of Miami uh, recruiting, right? I could do I could do a 10 part <laughs> podcast on that right now. 
Well, like if you were on, you know, there were about 10 golf topics I could do the same on because it's just, it's just a passion. It's a passion project. And I think that that's so important when you're in this industry, because I think far too often, and you alluded to it earlier, you see somebody on TV and you're just like, oh, this person's not into this. This person doesn't love this. And this person isn't communicating like a fan. And I heard a podcast a couple of weeks ago with this guy named Bob Balaban, who's an actor. And he was talking about how in the seventies, he was getting really good reviews for this play he was doing, but he wasn't getting bigger jobs. And he went to his acting coach and he said, what, what's going on? People were saying, I'm good. And they're saying, he's saying, all right, do you love this play? And they, Bob was like, no, I don't. I'm just doing it for the role. And they're like, people can, people can pick up on that. You don't think they can. And the reviewer saying you're doing a good job. People can pick up, you're not into it. And I've been thinking about that ever since where it's like, I see people so often where they're talking about football maybe they're a college guy or vice versa. Um, or maybe they're talking about, you know, they're on the U S open coverage. I'm you know, at U S open tennis and, and, you know, they, 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 they don't really know who the, the 30th ranked person in the world is, whatever, but you can see that stuff a mile away. The viewer can pick up on it. And that's why I think that we're, you know, I think objectivity and all of this stuff is really important when you get into beat writing and, and covering a sport or whatever. But the most important thing, I mean, I think that I think one of my really good friends in this industry is Mina Kimes. And yeah. she obviously does a lot of football and her passion for football. I was yes. at a dinner with her last week. Her passion with football comes through all the time. And right now, all she'd rather do than anything in the world is just watch the Colts offense and figure out what Jeff Saturday is going to be able to do with it. And I think we need more people like that covering those, any sport, or just people who weren't, I think one of the problems, and you know, this is that, you know, for so long, it was this person's covering hockey because they were at the Boston Globe and assigned the Bruins beat and they got on this track. And I think we need to flip that and we need to go, this person's covering hockey because they're the biggest hockey fan in their town and they can write a sentence and they're they're amazing at it. And, and that I think has been, should be the biggest change going forward and has been a big change over the past couple of years. So when you look at, when you look at professional golf, a couple of things I want to get your observations on uh, what has happened this calendar year in men's professional golf. What, what are, if I said to you, give me a couple things of all the things that have transpired um, yeah. as, as Liv has entered uh, the space, what, what has stood out, whether it be the, whether it be a person, whether it be a decision, um, what, what, what are the things that, that as you look back on this year that you will not forget about what has transpired? Wow. Um, that's a great question. I would say the respect I have for the group that, and now I think that, you know, as I was on Pat Mayo's podcast a couple months ago and he'd asked me like, who are the non-negotiables the PGA Tour can't lose? And we we know who that is. That's Jordan Spieth. That's Rory McIlroy. That is probably, frankly, Hideki Matsuyama. Oh, yeah. And and that the group, certainly with Rom and Rory and Spieth, their leadership during this was astounding. And my respect for them grew so much. And, you know, I think that, I think everybody loses in this whole thing. I don't think golf as a sport as a professional sport will be whole for many years, even if they're, even if the live guys are, are somehow able to accue will uh, points and, and play in the majors. I think that there's just, you get to a point where it's two triple a leagues rolling around in the mud with each other and slinging mud. And, you know, I, I was, um, I was having lunch with a guy who works on Capitol Hill the other day, who was just telling me about a meeting he had with Greg Norman, where Greg's trying to, you know, work, work, 
you know, Capitol Hill and all that stuff to get certain things approved or whatever. And, and, and I just think that we're going to, I think the biggest problem and sometimes it's happened with college football too. And when it happens with the NFL, they change the rules. And by the way, it happens in baseball too, is that when committee meetings and, and backroom dealings and all that stuff become more important than the sport, everybody loses, everybody loses. And so the idea of like Rory, um, you know, playing well throughout the season, playing well. And I think, I think it was Canada um, yeah. that week where, you know, we get to, remember why we love the sport um john ron playing as well as as well as he did like that to me is the guys who are going to take the mantle of the pga going forward um their leadership and their play and their excitement uh i think are going to be the reason that the pga survives um i think that their their statements the press conferences i think it's deeply unfair for them that they have to stand up there every monday and tuesday and say i still love the pga tour here's why i don't love live golf and you've seen that kind of evolve over the past couple of months um but i just think that the 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 next three four maybe even five years of pro golf is going to be a mess and we all have to appreciate the amazing moments when we get them and i think that that's you know, I'm a huge boxing fan. Yep. And it's very similar where it's never the best against the best. There's some weird financial reason that this isn't happening. And for me, the biggest thing is saying, okay, this sport for boxing, not golf, this sport can't get out of its own way politically. The people in charge of this sport, boxing are not, do not have the, the sport's best interest at heart, hardly ever. But what you learn to appreciate is when Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury are fighting in Las Vegas and they're knocking each other down and you go, this is it. This is why we do all of this stuff. This is why we watch you know, uh, undercards in, on Fox in, Jan in January. This is why we sit around watching old YouTube videos. This is why I'm watching Deontay Wilder's third professional fight. Like all of this is leading up to this moment. And so I think when you start to see live and you start to see the, the, the way this is going, then you start to realize, okay, we need to appreciate the amazing moments we do get because that's all we have. That's all this is, 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 is just, is just the moments. And, and I think that's the most important thing is I think we're no longer going to take for granted when we see something amazing, because it's going to be lessened over the course of the, uh, of each year because live golf is taking something away from the sport. Yeah, no, it's a very good point. I, I, you know, I grew up playing tennis, loving it, going to the U S open as a kid, wanting to be Borg and, and tennis has dealt with this fragmentation of, of, of the professional game, like who's where, yep. you know, they, they turn up four times a year together and, you know, they got the, you know, the, 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 the series that, you know, you'll get them at, which is now in Miami, uh, you'll, you'll get them out in California, you'll get them in Cincinnati, um, you get yep. the Labor Cup, but it's, 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 it really is like an eclipse to get them all together. IRL and CART, same thing, yep. you, you're into F1, I mean, they have not they have not recovered. And these are lessons that can be learned. There's so much acrimony now. I'm with you. It's not going to happen in the foreseeable future. Let me ask you about one person in particular, because I said this last week, and this is not to disparage the fact that he can't be competitive because the guy won a major at almost 51. And historically, there have been a handful of great players who genuinely love playing golf. And Mickelson is among that group. Mm -hmm. But I actually think his greatest value to live is if he was the lead voice talking about their product. I don't know that he can single-handedly drive some type of television deal, 
but is he, he's as provocative and as sit forward and listen to what he's saying as anybody in the game who's going to have any network job he wanted. It was it was a done deal. Let me ask you this: Where is he in five years? I, you know, I don't know. I, I thought the most instructive part of Alan Shipnick's book wasn't the stuff that he got kind of shadow suspended for. It was when he said at one point to another player, he wished the PGA Tour were 30 players. That that to me was fascinating because he started to see the psyche of it. And he started to see that Phil, Phil was not maybe looking out for the PGA Tour this whole time as much as he was looking out for Phil. And we started to see this. And you made the point. Phil Mickelson could have been... I mean, I'm not even saying like we had this whole thing about what what could be a golf Manning cast. It would have been the Phil cast. Could you imagine? Could you imagine the Phil cast? He would have gotten every guest. He would have gotten every guest. He could have just sat in in whatever basement he wanted to sit in. And any one any number of his homes could have hung out in Vegas, could have hung out in Phoenix. Doesn't matter. Put him with any traffic cop broadcaster in, in any. Everybody would line up. I know Joe Buck did it for the PGA. Every great broadcaster would line up to spend four hours watching a major, talking with him, and having every imaginable guest possible. A hundred percent. And I think part of what part of what determines Phil's fate in five years is what happens to Liv. If Liv is still this contentious, um, you know, kind of shadow league that gets that they don't get into majors, they're just kind of a minor league. I mean, tick, I saw someone retweeted a couple of days ago that some. There are tickets that cost a dollar on StubHub to get into. Right. Like if it never gains traction, then these guys frankly look like kind of a joke. And I think that that that's important to remember. Um, and so, but if if Liv either, you know, winds down or or I mean, I don't know what would happen in, in four years um that would be any different. But if it kind of goes away quietly, I think Phil has a chance to to enter, re-enter golf polite society, frankly. But if they're still warring, and if they are, as I said, kind of two AAA leagues just constantly going at each other, that that to me means Phil is still going to be ostracized. So I don't think all of the opportunities he had are gone. Um, as far as being a champion of corporate America, you know, it's funny. I mean, I, when I listen to all of his podcasts, and certainly, you know, you know him very well, you've done a ton of interviews with him. I, it seemed to me like he wanted to be a grand old statesman of the game. Right. And he was so happy to play with the CEO of AT&T and give them tips and, and be that stuff. And it's like, he's relinquished that. And that, that title, you know, in 20 years, will go to Jordan Spieth and Roy McIlroy and John Rahm. And we're talking about guys who are going to, um, you know, be, do the honorary tee shot at Augusta. That's not going to be Phil. Phil has abdicated his duties as someone who I thought was going to lead the game of golf for so long. And you even think about, you know, obviously, you know, Jack isn't perfect, but you know, you know, the Jack is going to handle most situations with, with class and, and be a dignified member of, of the golf community. Um, Arnold Palmer certainly was that in, in Orlando. We remember that well. And you, know, you think about all of the things with Arnold where he had Bay Hill, he'd sit in his golf cart you know, sitting on 18, watching it, he'd bring in young golfers and give them advice. Um, you know, I just read Dick Ebersole's biography where he's talking about how Arnold, you know, would, would take Ebersole's entire family into his house and they made these great memories. It was one of the favorite things they would do. And it's Bay Hill. It's not the masters. I mean, it's a nice tournament, but it's, it's not, you know, some, some, you know, legendary tournament. And I think that that could have been Phil. And what breaks my heart about this situation 
is that that's over. I mean, there's there's really no coming back from it. And and Arnold obviously was a, was a legend in the business community, and we, we know it. My my colleague Matthew Futterman, my former colleague Matthew Futterman, wrote a book about um, you know obviously the IMG and all that stuff and, mm-hmm. and and how influential that was. But that wasn't this. Um, this is Phil Phil Phil's steps have unquestionably hurt the game of golf over the past year. And I think Arnold took business risks, but he always had the best interest at heart. Um, he obviously quashed a rebellion. What was it? 50 years ago, 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, so it just, it upsets me what Phil could have been in 10, 15, 20 years and won't be now. Yeah. It's, you know, you mentioned the ceremonial first starter. You, you lock him in for that, uh, you know, network, lead analyst TV job, you know, the, 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 the Phil cast, all that. The one thing I would say as far as leaving the door ajar forever is a long time. And, and you know how we are. We, we love to, to, to guzzle down apologies. Uh, we love people, uh, to, to, to beg at the altar of of forgiveness. And I don't know when and if that happens and in sport is different. It's very particular, um, but I, I, I cite two examples. Alex Rodriguez was kicked out of baseball. Mm-hmm. Alex Rodriguez doesn't have one network job. He has two. <laughs> Michael Vick went to jail. Michael Vick yeah. is on Fox's pregame show. You know, I mean, I, forever is a long time, but I, I'm with you. This is a, this is a long road to, to forgiveness and, and a cleansing that's going to put him in the 18th tower of a tour that, that he was not anymore, part of a lawsuit, Right. Um, not, not to mention a club in Augusta national that, um, again, you, you put people on the first tee to open up the masters. Um, there, there, you know, you, you can look historically at all of them from Fred McLeod mm-hmm. and Jock Hutchinson to the ones who are ter- currently doing it right now. Not a lot of baggage. Now, Gary player, He's picked up a few, you know, he's picked up some odd, you know, debris here and there. It, it is going to be interesting. No question about it. Let me, before I let you go, before I get to these five quick questions, if there is somebody like right now, when you look at the live landscape, who is the most valuable commodity they currently have? Cam Smith, probably. Yeah. Just because, just because he's the guy. I think you could make this case for DJ, but not really, unless DJ really gets on another hot streak again. Cam Smith is the guy who, when we, if they're not in the majors and we look at the majors and we say, okay, they're playing at Augusta this week, they're playing at the US Open this week, they're playing the British Open, they're playing the PGA, we're going to say, what would Cam Smith do in this field? That would, that, that's how you game it out. Again, it's like boxing where it becomes hypothetical matchups. How would this person be on this course, whatever, if we don't see it? And so I think that the fact that he's, Probably their best player is important. Brooks Kepka, not in the mix right now. Um, Bryson DeChambeau, not in the mix right now. I don't think we think of those guys, even though we did two years ago, as guys who would contend for every major. Um, and we would with Cam Smith. So I think when we're talking about the debate within golf, it's going to be Cam. Yeah, and I don't think, look, he's he's obviously by virtue winning the Open. He's exempt. They're not going to, they're not going to prevent him from playing in these tournaments. So I, I think right. that he is... He, you know, he's got the essentially the lifetime until he's 65 for the Open Championship. He's going to play in the Masters, U.S. Open, the PGA. So, and what will be interesting is a live player winning a major in 23, and and how that is, how it's written about, how it's talked about. 
um, you know, the, the willingness, and I know that they are on like live from for Brandel and Paul McGinley and Rich yeah. Lerner uh, to carve it up. If Cam Smith goes to Augusta National and he has got a good record there, if he wins the first major of 23, it'll be a fascinating watch and listen to the way it is presented to the consuming public. Well, yes, and I think there's a couple of things there. So, number one, you think you think Cam will be able to play throughout yes. all of his exemptions throughout the entire year? I, I don't see anything changing in 23. I, I'm not going to go beyond the coming year. I just don't see them stepping in the way of players currently on live that have existing major championship exemptions like Bryson, like Kepka, mm -hmm. like DJ, and now like Cam Smith. That's fascinating to me. Um, and I would say, I guess you could you could make the case that since Cam won the most recent major of, yeah. of the live guys, that he might be kind of the lone the lone wolf in a couple of years if that's the only way you can get in. Because you know, I I, I you know, obviously, you know, Brooks is gonna have exemptions and all that stuff. But you know, if it just comes down to getting that that 20 uh that that US open exemption, I sorry, the British open exemption, um, you know, he might be one of the very few live guys just even playing in a few years. I can't, you know, majors. when they do, and I think the inevitability of them getting world ranking points, like where is their baseline? Like if they are, if they are punching against each other and they have, they've diluted their individual value, you know, if Camp Smith goes from second in the world to when they get points, he's 49th. I mean, it's, you, you have to, you have to be plucking off, you know, assets and as you go, you know, through these events and you win, that's the other thing that's got to be resolved. That conversation we'll have down the road. Let me get you out of here with these five quick questions. What is the best sports book you've ever read? Wow. Uh, I, I So no one agrees with me on this because it's not well, it's not well circulated. It's called uh, Bringing the Heat by Mark Bowden. So Mark Bowden wrote uh, Black Hawk Down and a bunch of other great books uh, about military and those sort of things. He was put on the Eagles beat in the early 90s, the Buddy Ryan Eagles. Um, and you know, Jerome Brown had just passed away. Yeah. And it is such a good look at football and the emotions and how the media interacts with 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 uh, with the team, with the coaches, with all of that stuff. It is it is wonderful. Um, you know, I think there's a handful. David Halberstam wrote some wrote some great yes. books. Um, John Feinstein has written some great books. Uh, I love the match. Speaking of golf books, yep. that's probably my favorite my favorite golf book. I also love, and I don't think it gets enough um, love in the golf book community. Is Joe Posnanski wrote a book about Tom Watson and Jack? It's Nichols a terrific book. Um, it is wonderful, and I, I have. There's a lot of people when I bring it up who haven't read it, and you know, most people, most people like us have read every single golf book. Yeah. Um, and I just feel like that that deserves more love. Um, but Mark Bowden's Bringing the Heat is always the book I default to when when people ask me about best sports books. Yeah, I assume you've read Open, the Agassi book. Oh yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I lo I obviously love that too, and also that's another one where it's like you learn so much about the psyche, you know, yes. both, both Andre and Steffi Graf just hated tennis and you just learned. It's like, Oh, okay. Didn't know. Didn't know that. No, it's true. Now I think I know the answer, but I, I'm going to ask this anyway, because I had written it down. Who is the best TV gas bag in sports? Um, and I mean that in a complimentary wow. way. I, I, no, I know. Uh, I mean, so you know, Dan Lebetard is is a is a is a self-described gas bag, so we can we can put him at at, at a number one. Um, I think that the guys on the debate shows are so impressive to me. 
Like Stephen A. Smith's ability to work himself up into a tizzy when it's something that he probably hadn't thought of the day before, you know, like a baseball topic or whatever. Like if it's the Knicks or something like that or Cowboys, like I understand him having an opinion that, that gets him riled up. But when he's sitting there and just, I mean, I remember listening to him a couple of, of months ago and he's talking about the Packers and he clearly like didn't have a ton of content. And, and, and he just starts screaming the name Aaron Rodgers over and over again until it became entertaining. And I was like, this man is a genius. This is like Mozart level stuff. Um, so I, 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 uh, I, Stephen A is my A number one right now. Yeah, he is. Um, I worked, I did mornings on Mad Dog Radio when it was born in 09. And so, you know, Russo is a friend and I grew up listening to him. The two of them on Wednesday, it's this bizarre art form of, of somebody who, kind of really helped create the medium of of ranting and and he was a rantometer on on Mike and the Mad Dog and now you have this virtuoso in Stephen A and it's this bizarro kinship like they I know that they genuinely mm -hmm. like each other and they're they're genuinely amusing each other as mm -hmm. they undress each other just pontificating about just you know half the time utter nonsense yeah. It's fascinating television. It's very entertaining. All right, give me who will be the second. I say second because Jerry Richardson, who owned the Carolina Panthers, played for the, the Baltimore Colts. Who do you think is going to be the second player slash majority owner in NFL history? Who is going to own a team in the NFL? Man, that is really hard because the NFL says one person has to be on the deal. Yeah. It can't be like Comcast can't buy it. It can't be a company that, right. that owns it. The, the, the teams are going, the commanders are going to go for $6 billion, $7 billion. So it's not like you can, I mean, Jerry Richardson obviously was very rich, but he, I mean, he owned franchises of like a food company. Yeah. So parties. Yeah. And so, you know, I think the easy answer would be Peyton Manning, but Peyton Manning is not going to have $6 billion effort. No. And so for me, I, I think it's going to be more like, I, I know this, this sounds crazy. It would be more like, it'd be more likely to be like an Indomitian Sue type. And I don't know what his, his literal financial situation is, yeah. but Sue, I did a story about this, the Wall Street Journal, very good friends with Warren Buffett. And got in with a handful of mentors really early and really, and I know this sounds uh, crazy and I, I'm, he loves the sport and all this stuff, but a lot of the reason he plays and a lot of the reason he continues to play is just to get money to invest. And so it's going to be that it's not going to be someone who gets 400 million from playing. Russell Wilson told me he wants to, to buy a team. And I think that's probably not going to happen unless he's got, you know, he's, he's starting companies and selling them. And, but I think people probably think, oh, this person is going to, you know, Josh Allen's probably going to make 500 million, 600 million playing football. Yeah. Good luck, buddy. That, that'll buy you a triple A baseball team. Correct. Okay? Like that's just the way franchise values are going. So I think it's, it's, it's almost more likely it's somebody we've barely even heard of who started investing early, sold a tech company for $6 billion. I mean, like, unfortunately, Patrick Willis, uh, got in some tough, someone swindled his money a couple of years ago, but like he retired to be a tech guy. Like that's the kind of guy yes. who's going to end up getting five, six, seven billion dollars. Okay. Good answer. All right. What is the, uh, what is the event in golf 
that you, you most want to cover in the next two years, one or two years? I mean, I've never been to Augusta and I have to, Oh gosh. I have to, I yeah. mean, like I, I, I gotta tell you, I like the idea of the U S open more than the masters reason being is I like the, the venue change. I like the fact that you're going to these palaces of golf and it's different every year. If you were to ask me for the next 50 years, what could I cover the U S open versus the masters? It'd be the U S open every single time, because I just love the pageantry in different places. And when you go to a place uh, you know, you go to Shinnecock, it's the biggest event in the world. And, you know, they start planning for it three years out. And my, my, uh, father-in-law lives kind of near there. And it's like, you know, people are knocking on his door to rent his house, you know, four years out, uh, because it's just the biggest thing in the world. And so I want to do both, but if you were to ask me what I want to do first, it would definitely be Augusta just to, to knock that off the bucket list. Yeah, no, it's and and look, if you could do the U S open as well, this coming year in LA, uh, for yep. them to be hosting it. They've already been greenlit for their second U.S. Open. They haven't even hosted the first. Uh, I think it's going to be great to see it right in the heart of L.A. All right, last thing. Your high-water mark as a sports fan was when? 2009 Orlando Magic NBA Finals appearance. Um, I will never get over that. It will never be better. You know, they made the finals when, in 95. I was so young that it all seemed, and maybe you had this when you were growing up, but when you have a great team you're rooting for when you're six, seven, eight years old, it all feels so normal. Of course we have Shaq. Of course we have Penny. And so there wasn't even, in, there needed to be some distance for me and some years in the wilderness where I was like, wow, that was weird. Like there was a, um, a Penny Tyra Banks Super Bowl commercial, a little Penny commercial. Filmed. Tremendous campaign. It was filmed literally two blocks from my house. Wow. Right over the East West Expressway. Okay. And I remember it was during the, it aired during the, the Steelers Cowboys Super Bowl. And I remember watching it and being like, well, this is normal. Like who doesn't have us, you know, like, oh, there's, there's the lake by us. Like there it is. And then like 10 years later, I was like, well, that was a weird time. What the hell was that? <laughs> and I didn't realize how weird it all was. And so we're in the wilderness. We're going through you know, the Tracy McGrady, you know, then to the, you know, Tony Batty, Carlos Arroyo era where nothing was happening. Steve Francis, Kelvin Cato, all these guys. And then we get good again and I'm in college and I get to say, oh, all of those things I was too young to appreciate, all of the weirdness, all of the, the mania and, you know, a couple, I mean, I, my parents both live within walking distance to the arena like that all gets replicated now but i get to enjoy it and i get to understand it i get to drink a beer and like that to me i don't think anything will ever be better than that i mean the only thing i can think of would be if miami came back back i mean like actually yeah, yeah. played for national championships but even that like i have so much perspective on it now and i've been through so much that like it wouldn't have the feeling of the magic getting back to the finals, beating LeBron, beating that Celtics team. I mean, I just, I, I, I come back to it, come back to it so often. I do, I do a show on ESPN called Debatable and uh, with, with Dominique Foxworth and Pablo Torre. And I literally, it's almost like a running gag. Like how, like, is there a situation in which I can bring up the 2009 magic? Because that's all I want to do. I could, I could just talk about that, for, that team for days. You know, I, I love how you just ripped off like seven names from the dark ages there's nothing I love more than getting together with friends. And I grew up a Yankee fan. And this was, you know, look, I, 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 this was the early 70s. They were awful. Steinbrenner had just yeah. bought the team. And I was lucky enough to be there when, when Reggie hit the three home runs. I was 11 years old in that stadium in 1977. So I saw, and I, you know, like I didn't have perspective. 
But but beyond that, like the 80s was awful. And I was a giant yeah. fan and lived through the miracle of the Meadowlands. Like I could go so deep on on the, the, the list of quarterbacks that that were terrible. And and then yep. the list of middle infielders for the Yankees in the eighties that couldn't hit two ten. I, I could do I love that more than going, yeah, I know Paul O'Neill, you know, he had that great at bat in game five in Atlanta. That's everybody can do that. I want to yep. talk about guys who couldn't hit their weight and and you know, like yourself going through <laughs> Tony Batiste's kids went to my kids' school. I, I was there oh. for the ten years when they were I mean, I just left there. It was not a good 10 years for Orlando Magic basketball from 2011 to 2020. Awful. Awful. But Paolo's got him going. But, like, I just also think that when you had those wilderness years, you learn what sports is really about, which is it's it's about, you know, going with your friends and drinking three beers or or going with, you know, I'm, I'm going to have a kid in a couple months. And it's just like. It, it you can enjoy things outside of wins and losses. And if you really need to make the finals every single year, you're not a great sports fan. And so you probably have great memories of, you know, just of, going on the you know, 4th of July in, in the eighties and watching some terrible Yankees team. I mean, like that's what's, that's, what's great about it. And that's what, that's why sports is so, is so amazing. Is like, even in the absence of some memorable moment, you can create your own. Yeah, I didn't get to see Yogi Berra. I watched Dale Berra play third base for the Yankees. <laughs> That is the low point. Listen, you're awfully kind. I know you, you, are, you are a very busy guy. I'm an enor enormous admirer of all of the work that you do. I, I hope you that. have a chance, uh, Kevin, to do more golf because it'll, it'll serve the, the game that, that I love so much that, that I get to cover if you do it. So thank you for doing this, and I wish you the best of luck with the move. Appreciate it, man. This has uh, been so enjoyable. I love the show. I love talking about golf. I, I, I can't thank you enough. Thanks so much. Really appreciate Kevin Clark taking the time. I do recommend, if you like anything, especially the National Football League, um, he covers it exceptionally well, can talk about anything as he just did uh, for the last hour. But I hope that he takes some time to spend more time covering the game of golf because I would love to get his insight and have him talk about the game and write about the game uh, that I cover and love so much. But most importantly, thank you all for listening and watching this edition of the Five Clubs Conversation.